so how to get grounded and rooted. We saw, first of all, the mess we got into in this world, in the United States, what's going on. Darwinian evolution and how uh, that brought everything in, really. And then uh, we took apart Darwinian evolution. We looked at the science in the Bible. We saw that the Bible is actually scientifically accurate. We saw that the Bible is, is historically accurate. But the most important lesson um, I can give is this one today. This is the most important one because this is the one on how do you actually get grounded and rooted. As we look at our theme verse from this summer, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So that's our theme verse. So today we're going to talk about, you know, as you've received, you've got the knowledge, you've received salvation from Jesus Christ. We're supposed to walk, not literally walk, but walk as we live in a close relationship with him, that's talking about. But it says specifically to be rooted and built up. How do you get rooted and built up and established in the faith? That is what we're going to talk about today. And as I said, I think this is probably the most important lesson I will teach you definitely this week. Um, maybe even if you've sat through many of my other classes in over the years, this is probably the most important lesson you'll ever hear from me. So this is important. Because um, I believe that to be grounded and rooted in your faith, commitment and service to our Lord Jesus Christ, two things have got to take place. You've got to be in prayer and you have to be in daily Bible study. Now, I'm saying Bible study. That is not the same as reading your Bible. I went to a youth group when I was younger, when I was in high school, back when the earth was cooling. Huge youth group. Big youth group. Um, the church I was attending, my junior and senior year in high school, there were about uh, 300, from what I remember, it was about 365 enrolled in our church. 365. Of that, about 200 were teens. We outnumbered the adults. We could have a youth event and pull up that many people very easily. We had a huge youth group. It was a phenomenal place. Um, I was there as a junior and a senior in high school. Um, we only had one pastor. We didn't have an associate pastor. We didn't have a youth pastor. We just had one pastor, and he was an elderly man, but he had a love for us. His name was Gerald Steffi. He's still alive today, still preaching today. The guy's got to be in his 90s. But um, he was uh, our person who, um, who uh, led us at that church, and he had just some volunteers helping him. For at the youth department, he had a lady, middle-aged lady. Her name was Mrs. Daniels. Mrs. Daniels many times would have us over to her house. She had a huge house and would have us over to her house, or, and plus we had the basement of the church we often did things in, and we were always doing things. I mean, every week there was something going on in that youth group, at least once, sometimes twice a week. We always had activities going. It was a great thing to belong in. Well, one night during our Bible study, as we were um, sitting around, and Mrs. Daniel's going to teach the lesson, something happened that really changed, um, in a lot of ways, changed my life. I was already a Christian. I became a Christian in eighth grade. But something happened this one night that really changed everything with me having to do with the way I read my Bible. We were sitting in the group. I was sitting in a nice cozy chair. And Mrs. Daniels was sitting about four or five feet across from me as everybody else is just all gathered all over the place and we're sitting like this. And 
Mrs. Daniels picked on me. Of all people in the youth group, she picked specifically on me. Not because I was sitting on her. I could see this was a deliberate attack that she made on me. Now, I shouldn't say attack. It wasn't that. But she, she deliberately had this all set up. And she says, Michael, yeah? She says, when do you study your Bible? I said, with a, I will be honest with you, with a little voice of arrogance and pride, I said, I read my Bible every night before I go to bed. Now, I thought with that I was going to get a commendation. Instead, I got a reprimand. Because this is what she said when I told her that. She says, oh, I'm so sorry. I was puzzled by this response. I said, what do you mean you're sorry? And she says, that you read your Bible at night. I'm so sorry. And I was getting a little anger now coming up. And I said, you know, now I'm realizing she's, she has set me up. This was all planned. And I'm like, well, what, these other people in here, a lot of them don't even read the Bible. Why are you picking on me? And she says, I'm not picking on you, but I'm using you as an example. Yes, I know you read your Bible. I have no doubt of that. And I said, well, what's the problem? Why, why are you picking on me? She says, because you read it at nighttime. I go, what's wrong with that? At least I'm reading it. And she says, Michael, when you read your Bible at night, laying in bed or just before you go to bed, and the Holy Spirit teaches you and convicts you of something, how do you then apply that that you just learned that moment to your life? Because what you're going to do is close your Bible, roll over, and go to sleep. She continued, she says, if you were to do this in the morning, the Holy Spirit convicts you in the morning. You've got all day to think about this, to dwell upon it. Dare I say the word meditate on it throughout your day and to make changes in your life. You see the advantage? Well, at that point, I wasn't seeing any advantage. All I was seeing was anger. I was mad. I'll be honest, I was mad. My pride was hurt. And I just sort of brushed her off the rest of the night and everything, went home early and everything. And I remember going to bed that night and climbing in my bunk and pulling out my Bible like I always did, and I started reading my Bible. And those words she said started really sinking in. And though I hated to admit it, she gave me some excellent advice. So, went to bed, made a decision before I went to sleep. From now on, I'm going to try that. I'm going to get up in the morning and do my Bible study. It makes a big difference. Now, I know some of you are saying, um, I'm, I'm not awake in the morning. My heart doesn't start beating till 10 o'clock in the morning or something. I understand that. I was like that too at one time. You know, I mean, I used to be able to stay up late and everything. Now I'm a morning person. I think partially I became a morning person from, from doing this. Um, but the point is now, and what happened was I changed my method of studying my Bible. I started doing it in the morning. I take things like even something that God spoke to me today as I was doing my Bible study. I walked to work. I, walk, I live two miles from here. As I walked in today, I just kept thinking about this and as I, you could say meditating on this as I walked along and talking to God through the whole thing. And I'll tell you, I think I have grown more spiritually mature because of this than reading it at nighttime. Now, my wife, on the other hand, is not a morning person at all. I mean, there's some people, they're just not morning people. I am. She's not. Um, and so she always still read her Bible. I would do mine in the morning, she'd do her at night. 
until just a couple of years ago, I believe it was, I was speaking at some church and I was talking about Bible study and I talked about this again. Well, she's heard me talk on this many times, but this time the Holy Spirit, I believe, convicted her because about two, two and a half years ago, all of a sudden she changed. Now, every single morning, when I got up this morning, she gets up a half hour earlier, which is what I end up having to do, getting up a half hour earlier, just so I can have my time with God. And she does that. So this morning at six o'clock, she rolls out of bed. She doesn't need to get up till seven. She does normally, I mean, she always gets up. She's always done this, always gets up um, about a half hour early than earlier than she needs because she gets up and she does a workout. She does lifting weights, kickboxing, and all this kind of stuff. My wife does that kind of thing. Now she's added another period of time on that where she does her Bible study. Now I'm not telling you this just, um, just to tell you a little personal stories. I'm trying to give you some insight of wisdom that was given to me by Mrs. Daniels in trying to pass this on. I'm telling you, this does make a difference. It really does. So as we get into this lesson here, I wanna show you now, because most people are never taught how to do a Bible study. I went through high school, I grew up in a church. I went through um, all those years in Sunday school and stuff. Never did anybody ever tell me how to study the Bible. They always told me to read the Bible, never told me how to study it. Went to college, I went to a Christian university for my undergrad, Olivet Nazarene University. They required us to read the Bible all the way through freshman year, cover to cover. No one told me how to study the Bible. All they told me was to read it. Get out of college. I start going to other places. I'm teaching school, I'm going to grad school, stuff like this. No one has ever taught me how to study the Bible. It wasn't until around 1989, 1990, I, we moved to a different area I started going to a church and the pastor, the senior pastor of this church, actually taught classes on how to do a Bible study. And for Sunday school, he said, I'm gonna teach a class on how to do a Bible study. And for the first time, my wife and I both signed up for this, we signed up and for the first time in my life, I had somebody teach me how to do a Bible study. From there, I went on to others and I, started taking other uh, classes and reading other books and stuff like that on how do you study the Bible and things. And now I teach classes on how to study the Bible. Um, I teach classes to the True North people and, and the other college programs we've had here. So I get to do this. Now, there's a lot of different ways to study the Bible. I teach Bible study methods, and in this I teach about 20 different, in my course, I teach about 20 different types of Bible study. I don't have time to do that with you. We have just a short period of time, just a little over a half hour right now. So I'm going to show you the simplest, the easiest, yet one of the most effective Bible studies to do. Now, this is not reading your Bible. This is studying the Bible. For instance, if you pick up a Shakespearean novel, like, I don't know, does anybody, anybody read Hamlet? Three people. Okay, let's pick another book. <laughs> uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. There we go. Okay, more people, about almost half, have read To Kill a Mockingbird. You can read To Kill a Mockingbird and read it just cover to cover like a novel. That is not studying it. That is not what you're supposed to do with the Bible. When you read the Bible, you're not supposed to read it as a novel. You study it, but people never tell us how to study it. So let me show you. The system we're gonna use, very quick, I've explained this so easy when I've been with somebody like on, on a flight or something or traveling or just uh, meeting someone at a mall or something and they, they find out I'm a Christian, they find out I teach Bible. Can you tell me a real quick way of how I can study the Bible and get more out of it? Sure, this is it. It's called the five W's and the H. Probably some of you have heard of this. It's not original, it goes back hundreds of years. It's one of the best systems there are. You look, when you read a passage, you look for the who's, 
the what's, the when's, the where's, the why's, and the how's as you read the passage. You just ask the questions. You're not just reading as a novel. You, come, you read it, but then you go back after you've read it, your passage and start just picking out these things and answering them. You'll be amazed at what happens in your mind, what the Holy Spirit will teach you. So you look for things like this, the who. Who is speaking? Who is mentioned in the passage? Who, who is the audience? Who's listening? You make little notes of this, and you write these things down. Some people do it in a journal. Some pe- I used the one years, uh, or early years, I used to use a journal, a composition notebook. I got out of that. Now I buy uh, Bibles that have wider margins, and I just write in my Bibles. Every few years, it's like i got to get a new Bible because that one's all marked up. And then I give them to my kids. But you look for the who's. What? Look in the passage. What's happening? Or what has just happened? Is there an object? What is the object? If you're talking about the tabernacle, what part of the tabernacle? What structure? What piece of furniture? What's this got to do with me? That's one of my favorite questions to ask when I'm reading a passage. What has this passage got to do with me? Because believe it or not, God is not a God of random. He put that stuff in there to teach you and to impact your life. The Holy Spirit, it tells us in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and teaches you things with it. You always want to ask him to help you with that and to show you what this has got to do with me. You look for the when. When is this occurring? When is this person living? When did this event happen? Or, because there's so much prophecy, when will this take place? If you want to talk about end times and stuff. You look for the whens. You look for the where. Where is the story located? Where, where is the event this is actually happening? Where is this person from? Where is this person going? Where is this geographically, um, where, where's it at? Or even geologically. In some cases you get that type of a where. What's going on? If you're on top of a mountain or something, what's going, or where is this taking place at? Where is it? So you ask these kind of questions. Then there's the why. And I love to ask this. God, why did you put this in here? I mean, God could have given us anything in his 66 love letters he wrote us. Why did he put that passage in here? Okay, God, why'd you do that? I love to ask him that question. Why did it happen that way? Why did the people react that way? You look for those kind of questions. And then, of course, we have the how. If some event just took place, how did that happen? Can't always answer that. How did these people get into that situation? How could they have avoided that situation? And the most important one of all these, how can I apply this to my life? Now, if you ask these questions, it is amazing what God will teach you. It might require you to get a commentary out or a study Bible or something like this, an atlas. You might have to do that at times. But a lot of times, you just sit and you just, you might be looking up other passages and stuff, but you're going to do this to answer the questions. Now, I want to show you something that I want you to understand. Some people don't like me to say this, but this is true. There is no law saying that you must read a whole chapter in one sitting. When you're studying your Bible, there is no law in the Word of God saying you have to write or have to read an entire chapter. These things were not even written in chapter, and verse numbers were not added until centuries later. These were letters. So there, you don't have to do that. Um, 
You don't have to sit down and read the Bible from cover to cover. I know some people, and here's where I get into some people have disagreed with me. I don't think it's really that necessary for spiritual maturity to read your Bible from cover to cover every year. Some people do that. My dad grew up doing that. When he was in World War II, he got in a battle in the South Pacific, and he made a promise to God, God, if you get me out of this situation alive, I will never miss church again, and I will always read your Bible cover to cover every year of my life. God got him out of the, the situation. He lived through it, and he did that to the year he died. I grew up going to church all the time, um, went to Awanas, all that kind of stuff, did all of that. And every morning I could get up and I would see my dad do two Bible studies. He would do one when he would be sitting eating his breakfast. Then before he would go to work, he would be sitting here with another Bible, sitting in this lounge chair, this lazy boy recliner, and he'd be reading his Bible. He'd read like five or six chapters every morning, and then he'd go to work. I've only read, to be totally honest with you, I've only read the Bible cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation one time in my life, and that was when I was in college as a freshman because it was required. And in total honesty, I got hardly anything out of it outside of boasting rights that I read the Bible from cover to cover. Because I read it so fast, I wasn't taking anything in. I went to my dad one morning when I was in college. I was staying, uh, came home for the weekend, and my dad was still sitting there doing that same thing. And I, I said to him before he went off to work, I said, Dad, can I ask you a question? He goes, sure. What do you get out of reading your Bible from cover to cover? Why do you do that? And he said, well, you know the story. I made a vow to God, so I'm going to fulfill my vow to God. I said, yes, Dad, I know that. I know you're fulfilling a vow to God, but what do you get out of reading your Bible every single year? From your teen years, he died, he was 68 years old. Um, every single year, from about age 17 or 18, every single year he read his Bible all the way through. I said, what did you get out of that after all these years? He says, I don't get that much out of it then why do you do it? I made a vow to God. He says the other Bible study is the one where I, I spiritually grow. That's the important one. But I made a vow. I was under duress, but I still made a vow to God, and I believe any vow made to God, you honor. Good enough, Dad. There is no law saying you have to do that. On the contrary, sometimes it's much better just to take a few verses or a paragraph those people who know me well, like my staff and many of the summer staffers here and full-time staff know, I can sit here many times for a week looking at one verse and studying one verse. I took John 3.16 one time, did a series here for a local church, and it went like uh, six weeks on just John 3.16. There's so much stuff in this. And you keep, every time you read it, the Holy Spirit can teach you something different. It's amazing. So I suggest, in doing your Bible study, pick just a couple of verses or a paragraph. That's all you need to do. Pick one little parable to start with. That's a great place to start. Don't pick a long one. Pick a short little paragraph, parable, or paragraph, and just start with something like that. Now, you always want to ask the Holy Spirit to teach you something. He wants you to know this stuff. He wants you to know these things. So ask him. Now, you need to set a plan together. This takes discipline. So, first of all, find a time in your daily schedule to set aside about 30 minutes to do a Bible study. I strongly suggest 30 minutes. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary used to always say 45 minutes. 30 is a little bit more realistic, it seems, for teens and stuff. 
I sometimes, though, to be totally honest, I sometimes get so much involved in a Bible study, I forget to eat. On my days off in particular, I'll be sitting there. My wife, I, I start this in the morning. I don't eat breakfast. I don't eat lunch. Finally, my wife comes into my study area, and she says, are you going to eat today? Yeah, what time is it? And she would say, it's like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I go, holy cow. Because to be honest, folks, looking into my Bible and studying it, in a way, I'm staring into the face of God. God is speaking to me. And there are sometimes I don't want to leave that. There's a part of me that doesn't want to get into it. Yes, Satan doesn't want me to do that. But sometimes when I'm getting into this, I just don't want to leave. And that'll happen with you too. Plan 30 minutes. Pray for the Holy Spirit to teach you something. Third step, pick a passage, a paragraph, just a couple of verses, a miracle, teaching of Jesus, something. Start off something small. And do the who, what, when, where, why, how. Read the verses. Try to read it in at least three translations. Dr. Howard Hendricks, in training pastors, used to tell them to get 10 translations. That's a little overkill for just the lay person. Um, personally, I usually use five, but three is a great thing. Just get three. That used to be so hard when I was your age because you had to go out and buy copies of the Bible. It got to be expensive. Today, you can just download them all on your phone. Um, there's a program I use frequently almost every day. It's called BibleHub.com. BibleHub, H-U-B.com. With that, you just go. It's free. You can download the app for free. And with that, you get over 40 uh, translations. You get over 40 commentaries. There's atlases, concordances, Greek, Hebrew dictionaries. you got everything. All at your fingertips right there. BibleHub.com. So you can easily pick up a couple of translations and read those. It helps to read these because it'll help clear things up in your mind a little bit. Fifth thing, ask the questions. The five W's and the H. You ask those as you do the study. That's all you need to do. Now, let's model one. For the rest of the time here, I want to take a passage of the Bible, one paragraph we're going to do, and I'm going to do this. Now, for this to work, you're going to have to interact with me. We're going to be, pretend we're one mind. I am going to ask the questions. I want you to give me the answers. So you'll have to respond for this to work. So far this summer, this has worked great. So here we go. Here's the passage I have chose for you. It's John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I tried to pick one probably you're familiar with. Verses 9 through 13 is one paragraph. So in reading this passage, we're going to start with the English Standard Version. That's a word-for-word -word translation. So I'm going with that first. Here we go. This is the whole passage, what you're seeing. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We could go a whole week on this thing easily, but that's it. Now, let's go to another translation. This is the NIV. This is the 1984 edition NIV which is the one I like the best of all those. Um, it's not as politically correct. It more gives it the way it is. But let's take a look at this one. It says this, same passage. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came 
to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, the third translation I'm going to use, as I say, get at least three, is God's Word translation. I really like this. It's a newer translation. Um, and I like this one. It's a thought for thought, like the NIV is a thought for thought. So here's this one. The real light, which shines on everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world came into existence through him. Yet, the world did not recognize him. He went to his own people, and his own people didn't accept him. However, he gave the right to become God's children to everyone who believed in him. These people didn't become God's children in a physical way from a human impulse or a husband's desire to have a child. They were born from God. Now I'm going to turn on the lights while we do the rest of this. Now which translation did you guys like the best? You like this one? You like the NIV? You, NIV? you like this one? Mm -hmm. Okay. But you find some translations you like. I like to use God's Word translation. I use the NIV. use New American Standard. I use a lot of different Bibles frequently. Um, I also like to read it in, in Greek, so I like to do that too. Well, anyway, as we're going to get into this now, I'm going to pick, go through this, and I want you to respond a little bit as we go in here. Give me the answers. I'm going to ask the questions. You just give us the answers, just as like we're doing this. And then what you would do is you're asking, it's like I'm asking, I'm your thought, I'm your conscience, asking the question. Then you just write down these answers is what you do. It's that simple of a thing. First of all, as we go, first of all, who is writing this? John. Which John? Uh, not, if I remember right, it's not John the Baptist. It's the other John. Yes, this is John the Apostle. Uh, the one who Jesus loved is, is often phrased with. Very good. It's him. Uh, that's who he's, he's, uh, who's writing it. Who's he writing this to? Mm -hmm. Actually, he's writing it to non-believers. The trick is, if you go to the end of John, John tells us this. Um, at the end of his gospel, he actually tells us, unlike a lot of other uh, people who wrote things, if you go to John chapter 20, verse 31, he actually tells us that he's writing this so that people will believe. In other words, he's writing this to non-Christians, that people will take what he's read and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's, that's who, okay? Um, great question there. Um, notice we have the word light. Who is the light in this? Yeah. It's Jesus. Now here's a great what, uh, why question too. Why is Jesus called the light? John does this a lot. If you go back a little bit, a uh, couple verses before he does this and you keep reading this chapter, you'll see he frequently calls Jesus the light. Why does, is Jesus called the light? It's an interesting pronoun. Any ideas? Yeah. Does verse 4 give us a clue? I'm sorry? Does verse 4 give us a clue? Well, what is verse 4? Okay, but... And then he says the light shines through the dark. Right. So why is Jesus being actually called light? I mean, they could have called him a lot of things. 
Why is John specifically, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, calling him light? Okay, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. It is an analogy that hopefully people understand, but because not everybody is responding really fast in here, I got a feeling not a lot of people know the answer to this. Why is Jesus called light? Yes? He does refer to himself as the light. He does. In a number of chapters, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But here John is calling him light. Why is he called light? Evil is often called darkness. Jesus is the opposite of it. Have you ever, I don't know, has anybody here ever been in a cave and they turn out all the lights and then they'll light one match? Have you ever seen this? This is not a cave, but let me show you. Now the Jews, you gotta think, this is first century. First century. And in those homes, Jewish homes were, were tiny, windows were very small, and when they would take a light, like I got a match I'm lighting now, and as this match burns, like if you're in a cave, that produces enough light to see everything. I've actually done this in Hezekiah's tunnel in Israel when it's super dark in here, everybody turn off their lights, and then we shine this, and they're like, oh my gosh, how much light one, can, uh, one flame makes. But there's something else, too, about light. But that is a major reason, you're correct. It, shine, it, it removes darkness. Light removes darkness. You're absolutely correct. But something else that the Jews would look at when they see light, it's pure. How often do you see dirty light? When a light is burning, even though it's burning off old wood and coals and things like this, the flame itself is pure. Jews would see it that way. Thus, Jesus is referred to light for those two reasons, primarily. Let's go on. Let's go on. He was in the world. What's this mean? He's in the world. He came into the world literally. He came into the world literally. Excellent answer. What do we call that commonly? Uh, Jesus becoming man, you could say. True. He becomes incarnate. That's true. We have a little holiday we call this. And it's called Christmas. This is the Christmas story. John doesn't have the Christmas story. He doesn't have it. Um, so he doesn't give us anything like that. There's your Christmas story in John. Also, a little bit later on, he says, and the, um, the word became light and dwelt among us. I mean, that's the whole Christmas story you get, really. He was in the world. Now, I want you to see this. And the world came into existence through him. What does that mean? Got an idea? Way back in the room. Way back. I'm sorry. To be born again mm, means something else. I'm sorry, huh? Did you, you came up with something? Okay, who's creating the world? Who's the creator? Jesus is God. I mean, that's this whole book. But what was the last thing you just said? Jesus 
created the world. It says this specifically. He, Jesus, came into the world, the Christmas story, and the world came into existence through him. Jesus is creator God. It says the same thing in, the, in Colossians chapter 1, also in Hebrews chapter 1. Everything that has been created was created through him. How many of you, let's be totally honest, how many of you came in here to this morning, into this room, under the impression that the Father is the creator God? Really, you all, almost all of you knew it was Jesus who did it? I'm impressed, because nobody hardly all summer long has actually said that. Yes? Three times in scripture it specifically says Jesus was the creator God. John says that, Colossians 1 says that, Hebrews 1. All specifically name him. And the creator God is Elohim. That's the word in the Hebrew, Elohim. Jesus is Elohim. He is, as he said earlier, he is totally God. But Jesus is the creator God. The Holy Spirit did not create. Jesus did the creating. I'm sorry? Well, they're all one God, but the aspect of God that did it was Jesus. It's what the writers are actually saying. In all three cases, you will see in the New Testament, Jesus is always referred to as the creator God when it's talking about creation. He is the one that actually did it. John says this in the beginning. He says it here. His, this chapter 1 says it numerous times. Colossians 1 says it as we're getting a description of who Jesus is. And then in Hebrews, we're seeing the description again of who Jesus is. The book of Hebrews, the first four verses refer to it again. It says he went to his own people. Who's that? Yeah. Mm, partially. Yeah. The Jews. Jesus was a Jew. And he comes to his own people. And it says his people didn't accept him. Why didn't they accept Jesus as God? Yes. Yeah. They were looking for a warrior king, judge, Messiah. What did they get instead? A healer? Carpenter. Carpenter? What else? How would you describe Jesus as the opposite of the warrior king judge? Yeah, how would you describe him? Humble. Oh, wow. Humble. When Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, on the Palm Sunday, what was he riding? A donkey. When he comes back again, what's he riding? He's riding a horse. What's in his hand? On the first entry in there, what did the people put all around and stuff like this around? Palm branches. When Jesus comes back again, what's he carrying in his hand? A sword. Mm -hmm. Do you realize Scripture gives us two messiahs? <coughs> Scriptures give us two messiahs. And this is important. This is how people, why they didn't accept him. Because the Jews... We're looking for two messiahs. There is the warrior judge. And there is the humble 
suffering. This is the one they were looking for. That's the one they got. Why didn't they see him in this way? I mean, they all knew the scripture talks about a Messiah being humble and suffering. They all knew that was in there. Does anyone know how the Jews and what Orthodox Jews to this day still believe about the suffering Messiah, the humble suffering Messiah? Do you have any Jewish Orthodox friends? I grew up with some. After the fall of the temple in the Old Testament, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came, temple was destroyed. The Jews were the impression the temple would never, ever be destroyed. It would always reign. They get deported out of their country. The Jews thought they're always going to be in that country, in the promised land. They get deported out. Their temple's destroyed. Now they're sitting down in ashes in Babylon trying to figure out what in the world just happened. So they formed a Sanhedrin. Leaders, spiritual leaders. They get together and they go back through the scrolls looking at the Old Testament prophecies of the, of the Messiah, of the humble, suffering Messiah and stuff, and they realize, well, they come to the realization, I shouldn't say they realize, they came to the realization on their own part that the suffering Messiah is the land of Israel. It's not a person. The land is the suffering Messiah. Because of that, because it's the land now, the Lamb, this Messiah, had then come, and they were not looking for him. So the next Messiah, who's supposed to come, is now the warrior judge king, who's supposed to be coming. And that's what they were expecting. How many times do they keep saying, even his disciples at the Last Supper, Lord, is it now you're going to overthrow the Romans and restore the kingship of the Jews? Even disciples didn't get it because everybody was taught at the synagogues this is the land and it happened at the Babylonian captivity. This Messiah is now done. But that was incorrect. Jesus came as the humble, suffering Messiah. That's why his own people did not recognize him. And they still don't. What I find interesting today is that both Jews and Christians are now waiting for the same Messiah, the warrior king judge. We're now looking for the same one, but the Jews missed the first one. Let's continue with this. However, he gave the right to become children to everyone who believed in him. What, what does believed mean? That's an important word here. Matter of fact, John uses this. This is a key word in the book of John. Trust. Trust. Oh, I like that. Trust. That is excellent. That, that is an excellent answer. Because the word in Greek is really hard to translate. Part of the, of the translation means to trust in. Put trust in. Yes? To accept that he actually is God. Yes and no. Because that could mean something. It could be a different Greek word called gnosis, which means having knowledge of facts. And believe it or not, I believe a lot of Christians, so-called Christians today, that's what they think, is their salvation is based on just knowledge of facts. You see, the word used here that John uses over and over and over is the word peshtuo. Peshtuo is really hard to translate into English. 
it is trust. That's like half of it. It is to totally put your trust into, into someone or something. But also it means to commit to. It's the same word you would use for committing your life to. So it's a combination to trust and commit into. When you're talking just having the knowledge, knowing the facts, knowing all the facts and things, that's a word called gnosis, and that is not this word. John does not use that word any place where he's talking about believing. He could have, but he didn't. In other words, having head knowledge of the facts about God does not necessarily make you a Christian. I'll give you a point from my life. As I told you, I grew up going to church. Went to Awanas, did all this, had perfect attendance in Sunday school, had all that kind of stuff. I knew, even in seventh grade, I knew without a shadow of doubt in my mind, Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus came down, was born. Um, we celebrated Christmas. He came incarnate into the flesh. He went about doing good for three and a half years, healing the people, performing miracles, teaching, doing all this. I believed that he was arrested and uh, in the garden, that he was taken and scourged by the Romans, that the Romans crucified him. I believed that they put him on the cross and they killed him. I believed that they stabbed him in the side. I believed that they put him in a tomb. And I believed that three days later he rose again. I believed that he went around after that, seeing and teaching and showing that he was alive. I believed that later on he ascended into heaven. And you know something? I was not a Christian. I knew the facts. I had the head knowledge. You think Satan doesn't know all that? You think the demons don't know all that? Jesus himself says in the book of Matthew in a parable, talking about the end times, people are going to come to me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. We cast out demons. We preached in your name. We did mighty miracles. We helped and... And, and help the poor, all in your name. We know that you're God, et cetera, et cetera. We did all this in your name. Do you know what Jesus says? Scariest line in the entire Bible. Depart from me, I never knew you. That's the scariest passage, I think, in the entire Bible. People are coming to Jesus at the judgment thinking they're Christians because they know all these facts and they've been doing all these things. They come up to Jesus I never knew you. They had the wrong kind of knowledge. They had the wrong kind of thing, the wrong kind of belief. They believed in a bunch of facts. They had the head knowledge. They did not pishtuo, put trust and commitment to. That's pishtuo. And John uses this word all the time. John 3.16, whoever believes in him, whoever pishtuo, Trust and commitment. That's how you're saved. I didn't learn this, even though I grew up in church, I didn't learn this until I went to a Billy Graham crusade at the end of my eighth grade year, and I was sitting in a folding chair in the back of uh, the McCormick Place in Chicago, over in a corner, and I heard Billy Graham explain this, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, I have known all these facts, I have known all this stuff about Jesus, but I was not a Christian. You could tell. I was a bully on my block, I had a foul mouth, I was a thief, I was, I definitely was not a Christian. So sitting in there in that folding chair that night, I said, God, I want to change that. I am now going to commit my life to you. I am going to put my trust in you. I believe, Jesus, you will save me, that you can forgive me of my sins. And Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. You, I am going to serve. That changed that night. 
instantly my language changed. I didn't have to try. It just instantly happened. Oh, I still have temptations to do things. I'm not perfect. I know that. But I know from that moment on, I am saved. My salvation is secure. I, be, I committed pishtuo belief that night. Where all the time sitting in church, singing all these songs, doing all this stuff, going through Awanas, all this stuff. It was head knowledge. Big difference here, folks. I wonder how many of you were like me in seventh grade, sitting in here right now listening to me. That you know that Jesus is the Son of God, that you know that he rose again, that you know that he did all that, but you have never committed or put your trust in. Big difference. And Jesus uses that parable. Jesus actually speaks on this frequently. But in that parable, he really makes it plain. These people come up to me, Lord, I did this in your name. I did this. I did this and this and this. I never knew you. Christianity is a relationship. How do you grow in this relationship? You study the 66 love letters. Let God convict you and teach you of things. Don't read it like a novel. Get into this and study this carefully. Not only that, this will ground you in the Word of God, and the Spirit will feed you spiritually through this. You will get nourished and be able to grow, but that's not all. Add to prayer, talking to God. This is a relationship. Jesus says, I never knew you. You know people. If you know persons, you know people, you communicate with them. Talk to him. And the Spirit will convict you of changes you need to make in your life. He will help you to do these things by his miraculous power. And he transforms us, metamorphoses us into a totally new creature. As we were walking up here today, someone was showing me this beautiful moth. That moth didn't look like that just a few weeks ago. It was a little caterpillar. But it went through a metamorphosis, totally changed. That's what God does for us. When God makes us into a new creation, the word in the New Testament is mortamorpho. The same word we get, metamorphosis, the same word. He changes us into a new creation. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Or are you banking on just having a bunch of facts in your head? We're going to pray, then I'm going to ask you one more thing before you leave. Father God, we come before you and we ask that you would just take what we've had here. May your spirit, Lord, continue to teach and convict, if need be, even for salvation here. Lord, I'm praying right now, if there's somebody in this room who's listening, or someone who's listening to this recording, who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they just have a bunch of head knowledge facts in their minds, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit will convict them of that right now, and that they will say, yes, Lord, I don't want the facts. I want to put my trust in you. I believe that you are God. You can save me. You will save me, and I am committing my life to you. I'm going to follow you. And I do believe and trust, Lord, if anyone, it's not magic words. It's what's taking place in our hearts. If someone really does believe this, and trust this way that you will save them. It's not magic words. It's what's going on inside. We thank you for this time we've had and ask that you just bless them. Keep them safe this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.